tell legal lies. I tell legal lies. Lies, lies, legal lies. I tell legal lies. And legal lies. And legal lies. And ban on drugs. Ban on drugs. And legal lies. Welcome back to another episode of Black Law and Legalize, where we specialize in the legalize. Today, I am joined by Afro Becky. And unfortunately, just Anne cannot be here with us today. She has an impacted stool that she has to have digitally removed. Digitally removed? Yes. I've never heard of that ever. Well, you don't want to you don't want that to happen. I don't. It sounds horrible. Yeah, we need to send our thoughts and prayers up to her. I think she's used to it. So um, we are joined by Paul from the Boxing Critics podcast. And you can follow him at uh, TBC underscore pod across all platforms. Yo, Paul, what up, man? What is up? What's going on with y'all? Chilling, man. Chilling. Um, So Ann couldn't be here with us. So we needed the closest thing to a lawyer that we know. And that's you. Uh-oh. Man, um, what we're going to discuss today is, well, one of the things I, I kind of wanted to touch on, because we had a conversation not too long ago, I think it was a couple of days ago, about the difference in policing in the North and in the South. So uh, I just want to kind of briefly touch on that, but our main topic is going to be um, CPS, Child Protective Services, and how fucked up they really are. But... um. I wanted to ask you, you recently moved to Charlotte, North Carolina from the D.C. area, right? Yes, I moved away from Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, shoot, that'd be four years now. I've been I've been in Charlotte for four years already. Damn, man, that time be flying, man. I've been down in New Orleans. It seems like, what, uh, five, six, seven years. And then I look up and I'm like, shit, I've been down here since 02. You spent most pretty much your entire adult life in Louisiana, so you may as well just say you're you're a five oh four boy. <laughs> Hot boy. <laughs> Man. <laughs> so look, um when you moved to Charlotte, um, did you notice a, a a trend or a difference in the policing culture? Because I know when I came down here to New Orleans, a lot of shit that flies down here wouldn't fly back home. When you moved to New Orleans, that's when I first got my taste of the different you know, behaviors and patterns that people do when they drive. I didn't at first think about the police aspect of it. I'm going to give you an example. When we used to get off a 10 to get on, um, was that veterans? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, on veterans. And I would always be amazed at people. It would be two turning lanes to the right. And I would be amazed at how many people would turn right on red from the center lane. Because, you know, I don't know if you remember that, but I was, I was like, why are they turning red from the, turning on red from the center lane? Well, apparently everyone does that in the South because I've learned in Charlotte they do the same thing. Hell yeah. Um, it, it's funny because I, I wondered, man, how do people even get off starting to do that? And I think it has a lot to do with the way traffic laws are enforced in the South versus back home. And it, it's a stark contrast living here and seeing the police as opposed to living back in Alexandria and back in Maryland. You know, uh, when, when you see a cop, you freeze up here. I be I can be a behind a cop, next to two cops, and in front of a cop, and passing them too. Have my music loud, yeah, and passing them and looking at them and and, 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 <laughs> and text messaging, and nothing will happen. I have no fear. Yeah, me either, man. Like 
going back back home, if you go more than two or three miles over the speed limit, your ass going to get pulled over for the most part. But down here, they give you a conservative 25 over the speed limit. 25? And that's conservative. (laughs) So, like, that shit's responsible for, one, a whole lot of these motherfuckers not knowing how to drive. And, uh... Like, I want to say New Orleans has top five worst drivers in the nation, according to some of these um, auto insurance. Uh, I, I forget. There's like an agency that goes out and looks at accidents and premiums and shit like that. And New Orleans was ranked top five. And that that's sad because it could easily be prevented if they were to enforce traffic laws these. Yeah, I, I believe it. I believe it. I, uh, New Orleans was funny. I, I drove in Philly. I, you know, drove in D.C. I lived in both Maryland and Virginia. And, and the saying in the D.C. area is Maryland drivers, you know. Um, but when, you, when I got to New Orleans, Louisiana in particular, you know, driving on 10, 10 is a straight highway. And I used to say, Jesus, why is it so many fatal wrecks on a totally straight highway? I don't get it. <laughs> it, it Man, you ain't lying. Three miles. It's literally three miles, a three mile stretch of straight highway. No turns, no curves. Well, there is kind of a curve if you want to call like 10 degrees a curve but that's just like straight and there's like 10 accidents every morning three lanes being blocked fires and shit i don't even take the highway to work and that's a damn shame you don't take the highway to the interstate to work no and it's a straight shot three miles yeah that that's that's retarded and these assholes ride all the way they don't know how to use merge lanes so they ride all the way to the end not knowing that y'all the motherfuckers that's backing traffic up. Like, get over when you can. And there's, there'll be a huge gap. No one will get over. They'll ride that shit all the way to the end and try to force their way over. It's like, you're not going anywhere any faster, damn asshole. You know what I learned? I learned something about that, though. I, that's something that us northerners, I, I would probably say L.A. people and maybe Chicago people do, where we get over when we can. But I did learn that it is actually, you are supposed to ride it all the way to the end. And it, 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 I was laughing because I said, I don't, I don't know if that's everywhere, but I did read down here when I, I think I was, it was when I got my license down here from when I transferred it, mm-hmm. that was in the driver's book that you were supposed to go and wait to the end. And I'm like, look, fuck your driver's book. This ain't how I do it. <laughs> and I'm getting over when I got a gap. And also one more thing, don't put your turn signal on and don't even really let anyone see you turning no. your head trying to get over. Nope. <laughs> yeah, you ain't lying. And they could be going like 40 miles an hour. You going 45. They going to speed up. Mm-hmm. Like, how dare you get in front of me? Like, yeah, it's just, motherfuckers can't drive down in the South. And I don't care what none of y'all think. Look, other than the, the traffic laws and shit, have you noticed any other inconsistencies as far as police behavior in the South versus back home? Yeah, it's a lot. And it don't just stop at the police. It also goes to the criminal justice system. You don't see I often wonder, like, geez, man, what do you got to do to go to jail down here? <laughs> you know, and also the people that I did know that go to jail, they went for serious things. And I'm seeing them all the time because I, I, I just met them. So I'm wondering, how did you get arrested for intent to distribute conspiracy? And, you know, I don't know, uh, I can't even tell you how much whatever they whatever substance they may have had stuff that'll get you mandatory back home 25 and it's like yeah I did about five years in they caught me with you know uh, a half a key of coke and, and I'm, I did seven years damn like, like Jesus I mean how or people that uh you know 
uh, violate child support. They get amassing about thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, and enforcement doesn't do anything. It's just a total to me. It's a, a ingrained, systematic level of, uh, I guess. They just don't care. You know, apathy. Nobody seems to really care about their job in the South. And like you said, man, I don't care what people think about what we're saying. It's true. Mm -hmm. All three of us are from the North. All three of us can speak from both perspectives. It's not like we we come down here like, um, like man, y'all just do everything wrong. And, you know, they the, the Southerners look at us like, hey, carpetbaggers coming down here <laughs> trying to tell us, you know, nah, it ain't even about that. Like public safety is public safety. And when you look at like like Paul saying about people going to jail, New Orleans criminal justice system is all fucked up, man. They let oh, this, this is a couple of years ago. And it's the only one that comes to mind that just really jumps out at me. This dude, you know, those do it yourself spray car washes where you go put the quarters in the machine. Mm-hmm. Man, this dude went to the car wash, shot the car wash up with an AK-47. They got it on video. They arrested the dude. And then let them walk. They they let them out on bond because nobody that was at the car wash died and nobody, none of the witnesses were willing to step forward to testify. So even though we got you on video, basically spraying an AK-47 at a car wash, you, you, you can walk, you can go. So wait, you need video and a witness? You need at least one witness, according to the news report. They needed one witness to come forward to be a witness and everyone said man this bastard shooting up car washes with ak-47s nah well shoot if i need a, a physical witness to, to to correlate what a camera sees then shoot you know you seem like you can probably take that defense to court all day if you get a red light ticket <laughs> yeah that's, ticket. What, that's what i was about to exactly <laughs> and, what i was thinking yeah that's actually that's how you get off on red light tickets though is um in, in some jurisdictions, at least, you can ask to confront your accuser because in most jurisdictions, a police officer has to be the one to write the tickets. So you have an automated system that's ticketing you and a police officer is signing off on it. So you can confront your accuser. So your accuser is a machine, basically, because there was no police officer on site that witnessed this. So you can get off that way by asking to question or confront your accuser. And the other thing is um, you can ask for like the calibration and shit like that. Or you could just say, hey, that wasn't me driving. There's a checkbox on the back of the ones you get in New Orleans where you can say it wasn't me driving. Yeah, well, the one thing, the one defense has already been taken away in D.C. And I'm going to tell all the listeners and anybody who doesn't know, Washington, D.C., the city, it's a city now. It's not a state. It's a city. It's people don't know. They make more money than any other state in the United States from red light speed cameras. I mean, red light cameras and speed cameras. Um, they are notorious in Washington, D.C. for that. And someone used that defense to, to great success when they first initiated this, those cameras. Uh-huh. You know, I, I demand to uh, face my accuser in court and they had to dismiss it. But of course, that didn't last long. Mm-hmm. Um, legislation was drawn up to prohibit that as a defense. And, and now a, a camera pretty much has the same level of uh, credibility to testify than a, as a police officer. So <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> you can't do that in D.C. anymore in case anybody wants Man, to try it in D.C. Damn. It's not going to work. Man, y'all got RoboCop up in mm-hmm. that joint. <laughs> 
<laughs> man. Judge Dredd almost. So what do you what what would you attribute the the differences in police culture in the South versus the North to? Would it be like just off the top of my head, I would say they they're kind of lackadaisical as far as their jobs go because it's 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 the culture they came up in. Like our our culture on the East Coast, the North, is we got like hyper vigilant police. Where down here, it's like, if you don't mess with me, I ain't going to mess with you type of thing. And policing is is taught. So you got these rookie cops riding with these older cops that's been on the force for a while who basically have gotten away their whole careers with just doing the bare minimum or not really doing much. And they pass that shit on to these rookies. So the rookies is like, well, I guess this is how the job's supposed to go. I agree. And um, when I first moved to Charlotte, Charlotte's a growing city, one of the fastest in the country. About a million people living here now. And one thing that I know, I always said, it seems like Charlotte is is, is trying to be a big a, a big boy city, you know, but at the same time, still trying to live as if it's a small town. And, you know, you spoke of two officers in the car. I don't know if they even do that in Charlotte yet. You know, you go back home, D.C., New York, Philly, Baltimore and all that, you know, even in New Orleans, I'm sure you got two cops to a car. But yep. in Charlotte, you don't see that everywhere. And I just think. It's a, it's just apathy, man. People in the South just seem to not be concerned with certain things. It's almost like really slow reactionary uh, state of mind. No, nobody considers to do anything until, you know, to do anything proactive, proactive, unless somebody dies or they have to. Whereas back at home, you got lawyers everywhere that'll sue you for anything. So they definitely got to be on their they toes. Well, that's kind of like a, a generalized assumption of the south overall is that they're slower than the uh, the rest of the of the nation i think you should clean that up before you have a whole bunch of people mad at you (laughs) they're behind the times they are slow to react not not stupid yeah not okay okay i agree with becky becky right she's right man i mean (laughs) look we both we all three of us are from the north and have moved to the south as adults so yes. we had a lot of time to really get accustomed to how things are in both both areas. And, and Becky's Becky's right. Man, I I look at it like they they're definitely behind the times and resistant to change. But uh, the biggest the biggest hurdle I'd say is state and local government. They they're the worst, especially. I, I mean, I'm not too familiar with North Carolina, but I am very familiar with Louisiana, and we have probably one of the worst i've ever seen both state and local governments well i would say north carolina is probably either right behind y'all or maybe a couple states behind because um south carolina isn't too good either uh north carolina makes the news for a lot of bad reasons i mean one look at the whole gerrymandering thing that's been in the news that's north carolina the whole bathroom bill that everybody was talking about that started in charlotte so north carolina has a lot of embarrassing politicians and in, a, in, a, in an embarrassing history. I mean, the Ku, the Ku Klux Klan used to have a sign on, I think it was either 95 or 85, that said, welcome to North Carolina. And it was like, and it said something like Klan country or something. Damn. That's North Carolina. Man, <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all do have some real fucked up stuff. Like that little chick we talked about probably about eight, eight, nine weeks ago. Chick got raped in North Carolina. And once, what was it? Once she gave consent, she couldn't take consent back. And that was like a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court ruling saying that, yeah, that's perfectly legal. You can't take your consent back once you give it. It's like, damn, that that's pretty fucked up. 
So um, rolling on from the state governments, because speaking of government agencies, Child Protective Services, right? I wanted to kind of touch on them and uh, some of the things they do. So uh, a little bit of background information as far as the Adoption and Safe Families Act. Um, Bill Clinton signed that into effect in 1997, and it was in response to concerns that many children were remaining in foster care for too long, too, for long periods of time and or they were experiencing multiple placements. So it sounds like a, a good idea when you read it like that or you say it like that. It's like, oh, we're trying to help these kids out that have been in foster care uh, far too long. But there's a lot of a lot of fucked up things that go along with this. So much like uh, prisons and police departments, the more children that are removed from homes by CPS, the more federal funding CPS gets. So you have an incentive to remove children from homes and place them into foster care. And in one case that we're going to get into one, this one child, he was a handicapped child. He was removed from his home and the, the mother tried to get him back multiple times. The state actually filed a restraining order against her to um, keep her away from the child. And the 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 CPS was getting twelve thousand dollars a day for this child, plus a stipend for food and clothing. So it's like you can't incentivize people to remove children from homes. That's wrong. That's fucked up. And another thing in this act is once a child has been in foster care for 15 months, states are required to file a termination of parental rights. And in some cases, they're actually encouraged to expedite it. So regardless of whether the parent was found innocent or of any neglect or abuse or or whatever they're being investigated for, if this investigation takes 16 months or 15 months in one day, your your parental rights will be terminated. Well, they're required to file a termination. Does it? That doesn't mean that they're. That if they file a termination, you're gonna you're going to have your parental rights terminated. And like what they do is they they prey on poor families and families who can't who who don't have the resources to hire a lawyer to be able to fight their case. So they, this the whole CPS is like real fucked up. So there's this one case in particular that I wanted to talk about. And it's a Michigan case. Uh, The lady's name is Elena Andron. Now, a couple of things about her. Uh, Elena Andron says that she learned the hard way not to trust the Michigan Department of Human Health and Human Services. But it was her son who ultimately paid the price. Johnny Dragomeyer was 10 years old. He died in the care of Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services in March of 2007. So, um... When Elena lost her job, she lost her job at a factory. She reached out to the state of Michigan for some assistance for her son, Johnny, because her son was handicapped. He had uh, cerebral palsy and epilepsy. He couldn't walk or he couldn't talk. So Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services placed Johnny in foster care. 
where the foster care did not adequately feed him and he subsequently died from starvation. In 2007, the federal government gave Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services $110 million for its foster programs versus $26 million for programs that would help parents keep their children. Basically, again, we see there's an incentive to remove kids from homes. So in Elena's case, the state received $12,000 per day for Johnny alone. And that's, again, not including the stipend for clothing and food, food that was actually supposed to be fed to this child to keep him alive. Well, so he's he starved to death. Elena agreed to place Johnny in the state's care for one year until she was able to find a new job and get on her feet uh, financially. But she was unaware that by doing this, she would be placed on a registry for parents who abuse and neglect their kids. In order to be removed from the registry, she would have to attend parenting classes, which was almost impossible considering She just lost her job, just got a new job. So they want you to come to these parenting classes two, three times a week for a couple hours a day. She can't. She she just got a new job. Right. She she would go visit her son every so often. And she started making complaints about his weight loss. He was losing weight very rapidly. So she was met with hostility from the state. And after making all these complaints, that's when the state decided they were going to file a in order to prevent her from seeing her son, Johnny, and a judge sided with the state. So the next time she saw Johnny, he was dead. Johnny went into foster care weighing 120 pounds. He when he died, he was 48 pounds. That That's fucked up. That story kind of jumped out at me. Uh, Paul, you familiar with that case at all? No, I haven't heard of that case until you brought it up, um, but it seems about right. You know, I mean, government, especially local government, you know, they're not always known to be the most diligent, you know, yeah. the most proactive. And, and that's a shame because if anybody doesn't know, it takes a long time to starve to death. I mean, you really have to have not been paying attention um, for a long time man. for that child to starve to death. See, you ain't lying, man. It, it's, it's crazy because... At 120 pounds and you die at 48 pounds, that's what, almost 80 pounds that you lost in less than a year? I'm not trying to be like distasteful or cruel when I say this, but one image that people probably would have to think about if they want to get a good idea for what 48 pounds looks like in a starving starving person, think about those footage, the footages of World War II, you know, concentration camps. That is is literally how that child had to have looked to die at 48 pounds. And how could no one have noticed that? Yeah. And these foster parents, too, like she she found out later that you don't need anything special to be a foster parent. You don't need to be certified. You don't need to take any specific training or anything like that. You just apply to be a foster parent. I hope they change that because I do know in North Carolina, um, as well as California, you do have to be certified to be a foster parent. You have to take class, uh, some kind of class. You have to get a certification in order to, to be a foster parent. But that's, that's a shame. I mean, I, I would hope that that state enacted, you know, a new policy to make force foster parents to be licensed. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you wonder what, what and it kind of goes back to what we said a minute ago, not being proactive, waiting yeah. for somebody to die before you want to do something. Yeah. And then uh, on top of that, she, this was a special needs child. 
So having just anybody take care of of him, you know, was just was not appropriate. You I would think that you would need some kind of training in right special needs. So um another another case too, a more recent case. I haven't looked too much into it because it just pissed me off seeing it is that family that drove the two women uh mm. that drove their family off, off of the cliff. cliff. Mm-hmm. Those were all foster children. Mm-hmm. And it's like foster children are some of the most well, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to say it anyway. They're some of the most abused children because in order for you to be a foster child and end up, you know, not not in in your home for whatever reason, you can kind of consider that a form of abuse, a form of emotional abuse. So and then you get in with some of these crazies and these lunatics. Next thing you know, you you're being starved to death. You're being chained to beds like that other family in California where the where the kid escaped. I don't know if those were their, their biological children or not. But um, molested, possibly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You were right, Dan, when you mentioned foster kids are usually the most abused kids, and that's not what a lot of people may find shocking is that's not just limiting from prior to foster care. Most of the, a lot of the children who get abused in they get abused in foster care. I mean, frankly, I read a stat, and I I don't have the exact source with me right now, but it stated that foster children are, like, a lot more likely to be sexually abused Mm -hmm. than, you know, Mm -hmm. other children. Um, I would think one thing that makes that happen is, yeah, and I'm not trying to offend anyone who's a foster parent and is a who who adopts kids. You know, you got a lot of good people out there, but some people do it to get the check. I know for one of you adopt a child, you get checks for that child. Um, A lot of foster parents probably take these kids in because they get money, Mm -hmm. these private institutions. So, um, I, you know, I was going to talk about a, a case in D.C. about Benita Jacks, mm-hmm. um, but I decided not to talk about that one. I, 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 it's, it's a few more that are interesting to me. Um, in 2010, in California, an ex-foster child was given $30 million uh, by a jury trial for a sexual abuse that happened to him in a foster home for four years. And um, funny enough, strangely enough, I guess it's not strange, um, given what we've been talking about, the foster parent was licensed by the state, despite the fact that he abused his own wife and son, overdosed on drugs before, and was arrested for drunken driving. Hmm. Um, you know, he, they found out that he was sexually assaulting and raping and abusing this child for four years now. And it, it, it's just amazing that, once again, these people are supposed to be, you know, subject to oversight. They have counselors. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to go on too long, but I'm bringing that back to the Benita Jack situation I talked about mm-hmm. a second ago from D.C. She was a, a woman, she, poor, and she ended. She had about four or five daughters, I think, four daughters. And she ended up getting a row house in D.C. for a reduced price because of her financial situation. And what came of that is she would have to be subject to inspections and, and from counselors. And her kids just disappeared. One of the children disappeared from school. Uh, took a couple weeks before the school came with an officer, came to check on her. They didn't see the girl, but they just made up something saying, oh, yeah, we saw her. They didn't file a report for a year, even though at the time they weren't required to. Mm-hmm. But to make a long story short, you had the police officers come to see the mom. You had counselors and caseworkers come see the mom. They ended up finding out that the girls were dead for over a year. Upstairs. Jesus Christ. And the only reason... Well, the only reason they found it was because the mom got evicted and the neighbors were complaining of a stench. And they ended up finding the girls in freezers 
uh, and also I think one was just left in the room as, mm. as she was for like a year, and everyone missed it. And Adrian Fenty, the mayor, ended up signing reforms in the law, um, and he called him to task. He said many people totally failed in their job, and you know that's that, that's an example, I guess, of what can happen if social workers don't do their job as, as yeah. well as they should, as opposed to overdoing their job probably when they shouldn't be. Yeah, it's and it's crazy because there, there's definitely a fine line. And I, I think in our child abuse episode, I was I was of the train of thought that like, all right, I have a problem and I, I voiced it in, in that episode with doctors and teachers and all these non-professionals. And when I say non-professionals, they're not professionals in abuse, neglect, um, child endangerment and shit like that. They're professionals in what they do. So it's almost like an NBA player. You know what I'm saying? He's a professional basketball player. What the fuck can you tell me about uh, child abuse or, or whatever? So they have a duty to report what they believe is child abuse. And my whole thing with that is children that aren't able to articulate can easily be coerced into saying something that that's not necessarily true or something that they they say can be taken out of context now knowing that because before today i didn't know that there was actually an incentive to remove children from homes it's like that's a give me i can go ask a three-year-old does does your mommy or daddy hit you and you know they might interpret a spanking or popping them as yeah they hit me and that's all i need to go off of yeah, it, the, the the line is thin, and and you spoke about the incentive. Um, you know, I, I know from experience here in North Carolina, um, a lot of the time they'll try to recommend you place your if, if your child has say a mental uh, diagnosis, but they're you know say like conduct disorder, and that's not really a disability, but it's just someone who's very badly behaved and they're out of control. And ZPS gets involved, they'll recommend, oh, well, maybe you should let them go into an inpatient facility, an inpatient foster care facility. And when you ask, does the state pay for it, they say, no, it is totally paid for by you. And the funny thing is they, a lot of these doctors and a lot of these facilities, they have contracts with the state or the jurisdiction, so you can't even choose who you feel comfortable with. And if you don't comply, if they order you to do that, order you to spend money somewhere, they can hold you in contempt, and then you can end up in legal trouble. Thanks. Damn, that's yeah, that's that sounds about right, too. Well, I kind of want to bring up one other side to this, which is the actual social workers. Mm -hmm. Now, from, I guess, my perception of them, I kind of see them as who do you call them? The public defenders. That's what I want to say. Um, They are overworked, underpaid. They don't have enough resources to and I get and they have a huge caseload. So I think that in some ways they are very similar to public defenders. As far as being bogged down right. and not being able. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yo, Paul. So I understand that you have actually had experiences with CPS. And um, what I want to do is get you to talk about them, if you don't mind, starting with uh, the first the first running you had with them. Sure. Now, stop me if I get too excited or I go on too long, but... I had two, you know, glaringly different experiences with CPS. One when I was living in uh, Woodbridge, Virginia, and another living in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I'll start off in Virginia. Um, you know, we, I, I used to have 
some, you know, every family has arguments. I had an argument with some of my family members about something with my kids involving um, nothing that had anything to do with abuse or anything. It was like about allowing them to go somewhere. And I chose not to. And I, I got into a big argument with my family. And what I found out was um, <laughs> one night I was sitting in the apartment and I got a knock on the door at like 930 at night and CPS pops up. It was strange. I said, what are you doing here? And they said, we got a report that your children aren't being fed, that they're dirty, that their hair is never done, and they don't have anywhere to sleep. And I laughed <laughs> because I, I, I just moved into that apartment like three or four days before. Mm-hmm. And I was still in the process of moving all my stuff in. I said, who, who, who told you that? And she said, we can't tell you. The funny thing was, literally 15 minutes before they came, my daughter had just gotten out of the shower and gotten her hair act done that night. She was getting her hair done that night. Um, and they and, and they'd finished dinner probably 45 minutes prior, mm-hmm. and you only and and the the, the uh, social worker walked in and said, oh well, I can see that I can mark all of these things off the list because <laughs> obviously there's nothing wrong here. And she said the only issue was I didn't have a bed yet. And the you know I mean when you move a lot, beds cost a lot. I was still in the process of moving. I had stuff in storage. I, I told her I said, well, ma'am, I got stuff in storage. I haven't even finished moving in. And they said, all right, I come back in five days and you got to have a bed. Now that pissed me off because one, what if I don't have enough money to buy a mattress. Right. So you come unexpectedly to my house at 930 at night because somebody makes a bogus call and tell me now I got to spend $600 or something or hundreds of dollars for something I didn't plan on buying yet. But, you know, that wasn't an issue, thankfully, because I did have one. It just hadn't gotten out of storage yet. Mm-hmm. But when she came back, she told me, yeah, we get a lot of uh, fraudulent calls from time to time. And she told me that I actually have the right to go to court. Um, they won't tell me who the person is, but I guess I would find out through the process. But I decided not to. She said, uh, that's fine. I'm not going to come back. Nothing's wrong here. And she went away, gave us our closure letter right mm-hmm. then and there. And, you know, she was nice and respectful. So a um, couple, couple of questions. Now, when they showed up to your house at 930 at night and you open your door, did they ask to come in? Um, yeah. She said, can I come? We got a call. Can we come in? And at that time, I was still young. I didn't I wasn't I didn't study any law at that point. I said, uh, OK, I still didn't know what it was for. Like, I just, they just said, we got a call. Mm-hmm. So I let her in. Um, thankfully, she was a, 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 a person who was good at her job and didn't take that opportunity to get out of line like some do, um, as in my, my, my second experience. But mm-hmm. she did ask, and I did let her in. Okay, so when she came in, did uh, obviously she, she saw your daughter, hair done, bathed, uh, whatever, food. Um, did she take the liberty of wandering around your place unescorted? Oh, she actually didn't wander at all. She didn't ask me to look in the cabinets or anything. She sat on the couch. She realized as soon as she walked in the door and saw the situation that there was that that call was just it was, it was an illegitimate call. Right. So she, she could she she didn't. She stayed on the couch and she just told me what happened and that was it. Now, it was actually a fairly decent experience. My last question before um see if Becky has any questions. Um not not that it really matters in this case, but it may. Was she what what was her ethnicity? She was a black woman. She she was a huh. black woman um and she was very kind and and professional in 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 her job. And um the fun, what what kind of surprised me was I expected all CPS people to be like her because that was my only experience with her and only to find out later that they're certainly not all like her. Right. You got any questions uh Becky? 
I think uh, your questions and Paul's description of the situation is pretty clear. So I don't have any questions. Okay, so let's let's your second run in with CPS. This was terrible. Um, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. We had an issue uh, in the family, in the household, uh, with one of my one of the children, a teenager, um, involving my other teenager, and he ended up having. We ended up taking him to the mental ER. To get him evaluated, we were there for six, seven, eight hours, all with him. They evaluated him, told us conduct disorder was the issue. Um, he also, also, the situation involved the police department. Um, so once we left the hospital, they kept him there for a couple of weeks. But that night when we left, we got a knock on the door. BPS, mm-hmm. two, two black women popped up. Two black, now I'm saying black women for a reason. They, they pulled up. I'm like, what are you doing here? So they walk in the house. Um, we had no idea what they were there for. Mm-hmm. Um, we just thought they were there to follow up to tell us the pro- what was going on at the mental ER for, for one of our children. Mm-hmm. And then they sit down and they ask us all these questions. What are you doing? How are you disciplining the children? Just asking us a bunch of questions. I'm like, what is this for? So we, we told them what we were doing, what happened, and you know how we disciplined them. And you know They didn't like certain things we were doing. Like um, once when they said they don't want to live in the house, we put a tent outside and said, okay, well, you stay out there. You know, it was a nice full, it was a nice, it was a nice tent. It was a very nice tent. We said, you can come in anytime, you, anytime you're ready to, re- anytime you're ready to act right and tell us that you're sorry. Well, they stayed outside. You know, that's fine. They had a tent. Come on, come inside, use the bathroom. They ate dinner and everything. So they told us, oh, you can't do that. And we're like, whatever. That's the only thing that worked. They told me to beat them. And I said, uh, oh, actually, they- I'm not too, yeah. I said, I'm not too keen on that. She said, well, Corporal punishment's okay. So I said, you're telling me to beat him. So anyway, as we're sitting there, she pops up with a, with a picture on her phone and says, explain this. And I'm like, okay. She shows me a picture of him, and he just looked like, you know, my stepson. I said, okay, what's wrong? He said, he has a bruise under his eye. So I looked at it. I said, uh, where? And she said, right there. I said, man, we've been sitting at the mental ER with him for eight hours today, saw multiple doctors, but we mm. didn't see any bruise. We were like, what are you talking about? So what ended up happening was this. He, when he cries, he pushes his, his, the base of his palm into his eye socket and rubs really hard. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and, and so he used that as a way to try to lie and say we were abusing him because the issue that we had with him, I, we had boxing equipment, headgear. And I said, well, if you're going to be doing stuff like this, you better learn how to fight. So I was trying to teach him how to fight. I didn't hit him. I didn't do anything to him. I didn't do, I didn't lay, I didn't, I didn't hit this boy at all. Mm -hmm. So she said, you hit him. He said, you were sparring and you made him fight. I said, uh, no, that's not true. Um, so I showed her the gear. I showed her the head, getting the glove and she realized right away that, oh, there's no way he could have hit him in the face like that. Um, but they ended up searching the whole house. Um, let me, let me cut you off real quick. Um, for our listeners to, um, add some perspective to the whole boxing thing uh paul is a a boxer so to speak uh he's a trained fighter so uh having equipment around the house is not unusual and also him teaching his children how to defend themselves are is not unusual he actually taught his daughter how to box so just wanted to throw that out there before people um kind of so man why this dude go out and buy uh boxing equipment to fight his stepson is it's actual it's actually a typical occurrence there because he is a trained fighter who also trains fighters of his own and trains uh trains his children so just wanted yeah, to no throw that out there there's no different than somebody having a football in their trunk you know? right um 
So, you know, that happened. They were being real disrespectful. So I didn't like how they were treating us. They got real rude. So she said, can we get this over with? Because I got a call. There's a, there's a child in the hospital right now with a cracked skull. I said, well, frankly, ma'am, they don't need you right now. They're at the hospital. So <laughs> don't come to my house. You know, and I, I'm also a former firefighter. So, you know, I, I dealt with people and, and, and stuff like that before. So, you know, I told her, don't rush me. You came to my house, you know, talking down on us. So this, this went on for a few weeks. They tried to force us to see a, a, a doctor. We said no. They popped up at the school to talk to my kids without our permission, which was against the law. Um, they, they kept harassing me. I would call them up and tell them this is not right, and they would be disrespectful. And, and one time they hung up on me. They said, uh, I said, uh, we, you signed us off and cleared us of any abuse when you came that first night. And she said, sorry, once we're here, we can do whatever we want. You let us in now. Mm. So I got, mm. I got angry. I, I called my lawyer, and needless to say, it all stopped. And about two weeks later, this is in June, we got a letter from them closing out our case dated in April, which mm. was only like a week after the initial visit. Right. So they just held on to that letter, messing with us, you know, trying to strong arm us for months and months just because they wanted to. And again, and it, that goes back to that incentive to try to take children out of the home. That's, it, it did. I felt pressured. I told. I learned a lot. I, I learned, frankly, never, ever, ever let them in the house again unless they can produce a court order or else they're not getting in. Yeah. Yeah. That that would be my advice. Um, I actually uh, called Anne prior to recording and asked her what her advice would be. And it actually kind of surprised me, which is she said on the first um, the first visit to the house, they usually don't come with a court order. But depending on the severity of whatever they're investigating, they might come with the police. But she would recommend that if you know that there's no abuse going on and there's nothing going on in the house to actually let them in. Now, this is also coming from the same person who said when the police come to your house and ask, can they come in? Tell them no. So I would I, w- I wish she was here to uh, answer to that, because I would hold that in the same regard, because if they really want to nitpick, I'm pretty sure, like I was reading this stat, that the average American commits like four felonies a day and not know it. So if they wanted to nitpick, I'm sure they could find some shit. So I I would like to hear her answer to that. But she did say allow them to come in if you know that there's no abuse going on and there's nothing they will find. But I would think that if they could look, if they wanted to, they'd look hard enough, they could find something. Yeah, you're right. They, they, I'm not a lawyer, but. Um, I will say, uh, reading reports and documents from a lot of lawyers, um, my lawyer, and I'm also reading a report from um, advocates of Connecticut, um, Thomas, I can't say his last name, of Connecticut uh, Child Protective Services Watch, and another woman named Amy from New England Parent Advocacy Network. Pretty mm-hmm. much they don't let them in unless they have a warrant or a, a court order, um, because like you said, if they come in, like my experience, if they come in, they will walk around your house, and once they're in, they're in. They're like I, I, I made a joke and said it's like I invited Dracula into my house. Hmm. They can't do anything unless you let them in. And um, even if you know you don't have anything like us, we didn't do anything wrong. Uh-huh. You know, they, they came in anyway. And they can find any single little stupid reason to keep the process going. We had to live under this BS for four months almost. Four months, four months. and they closed it a week later. Uh-uh. And they closed it a week later. But four months of, of spending money, of being yelled at, of having people you know, call us in three minutes and saying, hey, we're coming, let us in. Mm. And, you know, we're not even home, popping up at the school, threatening the children. So most of the time, like when I told them you're not coming in anymore, mm-hmm. yeah, they stopped. 
Because once they know you know your rights, they'll leave you. They, they pretty much leave you alone because it's very hard to get a court order for something like this. They have to prove, you know, totally in front of a judge that there is a sufficient cause so, for them to get to get into that house. What now? What were they investigating? What What was their um the initial investigation? Was it for abuse? Well, can you say <laughs> what it was for? Yeah. We, well, they didn't even tell us. We thought they were there. Because, you know, he was in the medical, the mental ER, and the police report was filed. We just thought they were there as part of the process. Right. It wasn't until they were in the house for probably 30 minutes that they popped up with this phone. It was almost like they thought they had a drop-the-mic moment, like a gotcha, you know, what about this ruse? So they started to talk to us about disciplinary practices before they showed us that, pay, that, that picture, right. hoping that we would say something to incriminate ourselves prior to that, and then they can prove that he's being abused. So... You know, those two advocates I mentioned, they also stated, don't trust CPS, never trust CPS. They are not your friend and they will never tell you your rights and, 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 um, um, and they'll definitely try to trick you. It's pretty much you got to treat them like the cops. You, gotta, yeah. you don't have to talk to them. Man, uh, another thing I was watching, I was watching this YouTube video in uh, preparation for to talk about CPS because, I mean, I honestly, I. Like every week I learned some new shit. Like last week I learned that Jim Crow wasn't a real person. And this is all shit that I would not have learned had we not have started the show. I mean, I, I might have at some point, but, you know, I, I do a little bit of research. I was watching a YouTube video and I was watching this court, um, this uh, hearing. It was three judges and some CPS workers being represented by an attorney. The CPS people hired actors to um to act like the neighbors of this family and say, "Oh yeah, I I've seen them abusing these children. I see I see them uh yelling at them verbally, abusing them, physically abusing them." None of these people lived in the same city as this family. So these three judges were we're pretty much grilling the they had to be represented by an attorney. And what the attorney kept saying was, um, you know, my clients, uh, you know, they made a moral, a moral they had a lapse in their moral judgment, but they didn't commit any crimes. So the judge is like, no, there's statutes against perjury. So the lawyer kept trying to take it away from the statutes and wanted to talk about, um, well, can you point out case law? And that's a cop out for a lot of lawyers. It's like and the judge is like, no, I don't have to. We don't have to use case law one. And I don't have to point any case law out to mm -hmm. you. <laughs> if you, That's his job. Actually. Yeah. So you should you should have whatever. So basically this went on for 45 minutes and the the judge, I, I didn't make it to the end of the video. I was getting kind of pissed off. But just the fact that these people hired actors, basically, to come in and say, to give statements saying that this family was abusing these children to get the children taken away. Now, imagine if if this one or two or however many people got caught doing this. Imagine how often this goes on where and like in Paul's case, where you get some assholes that come in, they want to flex on you. And they 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 want they want you to feel beneath them like they have some sort of authority over your family, your family life. Like just imagine how many times and Paul had mentioned in D.C., the cops and the, the um, social workers going out to the house, making shit up, saying, oh, yeah, we saw the kid, the kid who had probably been dead for months at that time. 
is the CPS. They're, they're full of shit. They're full of shit, man. And they rarely get it right. They rarely do. The, the people I mentioned a minute ago, the advocates, uh, Thomas Dutkowitz and Amy Dutkowitz, um, I stated before, they're from Connecticut, uh, um, DCF Watch, Child Protective Services Watch, and New, uh, New England Parent Advocacy Network. They provided uh, some information. Now, they didn't give a site, an uh, actual you know, source, but it's believable to me. They estimate that 80% of the calls that are made to CPS are false and bogus. Um, you know, going back to what you said about you know, with, with, with cops coming to your door, you know, they, they pretty much, they give instructions, man. These people said never trust anyone from CPS. They say even if a cop is at the door, sometimes oh. they'll come to your door with a cop. They'll threaten you. They'll say, you must let us in. We'll arrest you for violating an investigation. They, you, if you don't have a warrant from the judge, they can't come in and don't let them in. And, but the funny thing is this, a lot of people don't know if, if they lie, to, you know, and get access to your house or your child, they, mm-hmm. they blatantly lie to you and you can prove it. You can in turn sue them. And that is a tactic they use. They will try to scare you. They will blatantly straight up lie to you and say, you must let me in, uh, They'll, you know, to try to force you. And if they right. do that, they can be held liable. But sadly, a lot of people don't know that. And these people operate with a lot of autonomy with little, uh, you know, pushback. And, that, and that, that's a major issue is why they continue to do these tactics. Yeah. And that's no, like like you likened it to the police, like when they're interrogating you and, you know, they get you in that little interrogation room. The The first thing you're going to do is if you don't know your rights or if you're not familiar with the process, you're going to start answering all the questions they ask you, not thinking to say, um, yeah, I like to invoke my right to counsel or let me talk to a lawyer. You, you're going to start talking. And the same goes with CPS. And a lot of people think that, especially if they've done nothing wrong, they can explain their way out of whatever whatever it is they're in. So CPS shows up, you don't necessarily know your rights, and you let them into your house and you start talking to them and answering questions. Like, when, once you get to that point, you, you're being placed into a, a really bad situation. And lucky for you, the first time, you know, you had someone that was reasonable but that that's not they're not there to be reasonable. They I, I think very few of them. And this is again, I have no experience with them, but I, I've just read a lot of stories. And of course, the one thing about the Internet is people post bad experiences more than good. You're never going to see, you know, a shitload of people saying how great CPS is. But um, from from what I was reading is that. They're full of shit, and you—they you, basically put you in a lose-lose, a lose-lose type of situation. They do. The, the, the advocates also state, you know, like going back to about letting them in if you didn't do anything wrong. They don't recommend you do that because, from my experience, you know, they don't put anything positive in that report. You know, they recommend don't sign anything, don't agree to anything, and even if you're not guilty and you agree to go through the whole the whole program just to comply. They say everything that you say to them will be used against you if you admitted it. Um, they gave an example of stating, does your husband drink? And if your answer is maybe, yeah, he drinks a couple nights a week, they'll put in that report, uh, uh, you know, try to make it sound as if you abuse alcohol. So anything, they're not going to put anything in the report to say, great parents, nothing wrong here. They're going to put, they're going to find a way to say something's wrong. The house is a mess. You're not doing right. So that's why a lot of, a lot of advocacy groups and even lawyers will recommend never let them in the house. If they do knock on your door, the only thing that they recommend do is let your kids be at the door with you so they can at least see the kids there 
before they do have a reason to come back with a warrant. But other than that, don't let them in. Yeah. Don't let them people in at all. Any tactics necessary to get that money. Yeah, and that that's crazy, too, you know, that that kid in Michigan, the one that died um, in foster care, was worth $12,000 a day to the state. So, plus a stipend. Yeah, plus the stipend. And I think the stipend is what, what Paul was talking about goes to the family. And I, I want to say the stipend and probably a percentage of whatever the federal, federal government's paying. So... That, you know, uh, just to kind of wrap it up, that Bill Clinton, as good of a president as he was, he signed some boneheaded shit into um, and he signed some boneheaded legislation into law and strikes laws and mandatory minimums. And also he's responsible for the private prisons that we have now. Yeah. And that uh, going going along with the CPS, private prison, same thing. Everything. Once you start putting dollar signs on shit on people, you're undermining whatever i say human rights once you put a profit on a price tag on a person's human that, rights then it's, and it's all corrupt at that point yeah yeah well it's basically in a way slavery well pretty much yeah so how, how much can i buy that nigger for so yeah man but uh i want to wrap it up with since we don't have ask an attorney with us today we're gonna uh do two things uh one how woke is afro becky oh, becky man. becky all right, so this is where I ask uh, Becky. I, I give her a name of a historical figure, and she has to tell me who this person was, and it's it's always an African-American. So today we're going to go with Wendell Oliver Scott. Who was he? I have no answer for you. Got to give me something. So I have to guess. Mm-hmm. He was an inventor. Okay. Um, You are incorrect. Uh, Paul, would you <laughs> like to take a crack at it? Let me tell you something. Where am I from? Where, where do I live right now, Dan? Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. What is, well, you may not know this, what is Charlotte, North Carolina known for um, in, in a certain sport? I think, I do believe they are known for the Googling Olympics. Wrong. They are known <laughs> for NASCAR. Living in Charlotte, I've learned a lot about NASCAR that I otherwise do not want to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you kind of hear it. Because the Hall of Fame is here, and people like it. Black people like NASCAR in Charlotte. So, that being said, he is a black NASCAR driver. I don't oh. know if he was the first, but I know that name, and I know he was a driver. He is. That is all I know. He is the um, first black uh, NASCAR driver. That is correct. Damn. So I left first out, though. So, does that, does that make me wrong yeah we'll give you 70 percent. but uh now we're gonna do another segment ask a former firefighter firefighter <laughs> firefighter all right i'm gonna give you two terms and i want to see if you can describe them Uh-oh. uh actually it's been, it's been, a, been a few years let me let me start with becky since she just should not know well, whatsoever wait, wait this is a segment ask right yeah. But if he answers it correctly, then you don't get a shot at it. So I'm going to ask you, what is a red line? Um, it is the line of fire where the line is uh, between what's not burning and what is burning. OK, Paul, what is a red line? Sheesh. I, I, I can tell you one thing as a former firefighter. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, red line is. A red one-inch diameter hose that puts out 60 gallons per minute. Our engines and trucks have them. We use them on car fires, trash fires. Oh, wow. And That's even, called a bumper line to us. 
Oh, well, see, they, they didn't give us the <laughs> AKA. What is a burning index? A burning in oh the burn index? Is that um for now I don't know if I'm I may be wrong here, but I believe that's for EMS and assessing the burns of a person, whether it be full thickness, partial thickness, yes, first degree, second degree, third degree, or assessing a, a critical burn versus a non critical burn. Am I right? No. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, burning index is an estimate of the potential difficulty of fire containment as it relates to the flame length at the most rapidly spreading portion of the fire's perimeter. Man, fuck all that. Huh. I just put water. That, you know what that is? Let me tell you what that is. And now that you said that, I, I know that term. That is a term that you only know to pass a test. That's why I, I, I'm not gonna lie. Once now, once you said that, I do know that term because I've, I've you know taken the lieutenant's exam, taken a lot of fire science, fire behavior, building construction tests. Yeah, that 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 is pretty much only for passing a test because it's important to know that because you may want to know: Do you need to use foam on this fire? Uh, how much water will you need? How many gallons per minute do you need to put on this thing? So. It's not practical on the on scene because you can't sit there. You've got enough equations to do already for your pump pressure um, and all that. You, you don't got time to do another equation when you definitely can't even see the inside of the building that's on fire because you don't know what's on fire until you actually get in there. So. Yeah, man, that that's, that's a lot of fields have shit like that. IT as well. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, like uh, mainframes. Like when you say that shit to someone that, that uh, is not in IT, they probably think, yeah, man, that that's some complicated, you know, that's like real complicated. Your master, this, that. No one says that shit. That's like. Well, I, I'm in IT and I don't know what the fuck a mainframe is. So it's just one of those things. I, I, I can honestly say I only heard that term in preparation for exams. I, I'm honest, and maybe some listeners out there who may be firefighters, they may be like, you know, pretend to be know-it-alls and say, "Oh, that guy's not a real firefighter. He's a piece of shit. He's a Jake, right?" <laughs> Dude's <But> a Jake. <laughs> I, I will say that they're probably either fresh out of the academy, instructed at the academy. They, they write tests for the, for the fire department, or they're just studying for a test right now. Or the most likely option is they haven't heard of it either. They look it up when they hear it, and then they pretend like they know it all in, uh, you know, afterwards. Yeah, I do that all the time. So that <laughs> wraps up another episode of Black Law and Legal Lies, where we specialize in illegal lies. And um, remember, if you like the show, to subscribe, rate, five stars, nothing less, because we mm-hmm. don't. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Law Podcast. You can follow me personally at I am Dan on Drugs. And you can follow Just Ann at I Tell Legal Lies. And you can also email us uh, blacklawpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like your question answered during our Ask an Attorney segment. Uh, yo, Paul, where the, where can the people find you? The people can find me on Twitter at The Boxing Critics, and that's at capital TBC underscore pod on Twitter. So it's The Boxing Critics at TBC underscore pod on Twitter. So how are you coming along with the uh, with, with the podcast? When are we going to expect to hear the first episode? I'm hoping to get the first episode out um, to review the upcoming Terrence Crawford-Jeff uh, Horn fight. Um, that's coming up on Saturday on ESPN Plus, which kind of rubs me the wrong way. But um, hopefully, hopefully now, hopefully within the next week to two weeks, we'll have that first episode ready to go and, and you guys can finally 
Uh, see what we all about. All right. I'm looking forward to that's it. That's a bet, man. So if all y'all boxing fans out there, if you want to hear boxing talk, that's the place to go. All right, man. <laughs> Good all show, y'all. Appreciate being on. Oh, yeah. thanks, for, thanks for being on. Okay, so we got just Ann on the phone to answer for some of her bullshit, right? Uh, yo, Ann. Wait. Wait, what? Yo, so wait. How how the procedure go? You know what? Screw you. I'm not even feeding into this foolish. Uh, we just need to know. Uh, the listeners, you know, they're a little concerned about the impacted stool that you had to get digitally removed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we were calling to check on you. And we also wanted you to explain your advice as far as letting um, letting the CPS people in on their first visit without uh, order because... According to many advocates, that is the last thing you should do. So can you uh, explain why it is that you recommend people do let them in? Uh, I don't think I recommend that. Uh, someone asked me a question. Someone, someone asked me a question and off the cuff, I threw that out there. I don't know if I would recommend that. Okay, so um, so what C- is your recommendation? Well, yeah, CPS is at the door. They don't have a court order. They got a phone call that you were abusing, neglecting your children. So what, what do we do here? I have no clue. I, I Honestly, this is not my, my uh, field of reference. I have no clue what you do. You should never listen to anything that I ever say. There is nothing and no way and no how that uh, my advice can be trusted. Okay. And with that being said, what do you do? I hate you so much. I really, I really. I'm saying really... people, people need to know this shit, and we've been giving legal advice for over an hour now. So we just, we, we need a couple. Wait, hold up. If that's the case, what was your advice? Uh, so yeah. I'm gonna say ditto on whatever advice you gave. Okay, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. You can kill a CPS worker. Mm-hmm. There is no problem with that, and you, you. There's no consequences. You nothing. won't go to jail. Nothing. You're good. Mm-hmm. You're, None at all. You're None good. At all. I mean, basically, you just Donald Trump that shit. You exactly. know, Donald Trump could walk down the street in New York and shoot somebody and not suffer a lick of consequence. Hey, okay. It's America. This is America. This is America. This is America. And ask an attorney, attorney, attorney. So check this out. We learned something new in talking with Paul. Now, CPS came to his house, right? Uh, he let him in. Now, his um, stepson, they had to check him into a mental ER. And they were there for about seven to eight hours. They ended up leaving. Uh, him and his wife ended up leaving, going home. They kept his stepson for a couple of weeks. So as they got home, CPS pulled up. CPS asked, could they come in? So at this point, they were thinking that it was just part of him checking his stepson into the uh, mental facility, right? Mm -hmm. Turns out it wasn't. They were there because they thought that he was abusing his children. So they sit there for 30, 40 minutes. They're rude with him. Um, They were asking him about his style of discipline and how he disciplined his kids. So one of the... um, 
One of the things he told him as far as discipline is he does not use corporal punishment, but he did set up a tent in the backyard and it was a nice tent. According to Paul, it was a nice tent. And he told them that if they can't abide by the rules and they don't want to be in the house, they can go live in the tent in the yard to which they did for a while. So they eventually came back, came back in the house and it's not like they lost access to the house. They could come in, use the bathroom, eat, but you're living in a tent. So CPS told him that that was against the law. Is that against the law? Well, CPS says that it's against the law. Who am I to say that it's not? CP- and actually, <laughs> they say a lot of uh, shit. Actually, um, I'm thinking it all depends because if you have, even though they have access to the bathroom and anything else, I would think that. They are saying that it is illegal because they have no, and I'm saying this in quotation, adult supervision, number one, they're outside in the element, Mm -hmm. number two, even though it is in your backyard. In a nice tent. (laughs) Right. It is still outside in a tent. So for the most part, they they may have a case for child endangerment because how much protection is a tent if, say, a wild dog were to come into your yard and ravage them? So uh, only, I mean, only, only Negroes would think of a wild dog as being the worst case scenario. Niggas are scared of dogs, just, man. Niggas be scared of dogs. Saying, I'm saying there there are any of a number of dangers. So. Okay. Now, um, so they they recommended that he beat his children. <laughs> they actually Cor- told Well, corporal punishment is not a crime. That yeah. is that is child abuse get is this. a crime. Get this. After recommending that he beat his children, they pulled out a photo of his stepson's eye, which, and they slammed it on the table, like, uh, as he described, a mic drop moment and said, well, right. what's this? Did you beat your, child? Did you beat your child? <laughs> so It af- looks like you gave your child a black eye. Exactly. And so Paul's explanation is, um, as those of us who know Paul knows that he is super light. His kids are super light skinned. So his stepson, when he cries, he rubs his eyes. His eyes turn red. So that's what it was. But according to them, um, it looked like, oh, his stepson said that uh, Paul put headgear on and boxing gloves and sparred with him. So uh, anyway, because it is okay to beat your child. It is not okay to abuse your child. Right. So basically, um, say you're beating your child and in beating them, they fake left, but you come with the uppercut Hmm. and you hit them in the eye. I'm just saying Uh, uh, that's against, that's against the rules. No, it's not, it's not against the rules of boxing. And that wasn't even the case. Paul didn't put his hands on him. Um, So anyway, here is the kicker. The kicker is after talking to Paul and his wife in their home, they left. Um, They went up to the school and talked to the kids individually without Paul nor his wife knowing. And according to Paul, that is illegal, is it? Yes. Okay. And what, what makes that illegal? Because just like, well, in my head, 
this is this is why it would be illegal. One, there was no was there an open case? Um maybe, I don't know. Paul said they closed the case um within the week but didn't send him the letter till months after. To about three, four months later. Okay, so let's take this in two parts then. If there was an open case, then they may have had the right to question the children to ascertain whether whether or not they were being abused. Without the parents' knowledge at school? Or consent. Yeah. Or supervision. Because, <laughs> because, if, because, because if I think that you have committed a crime, why am I going to get consent from you to approach the person that you've committed the crime against? But wouldn't you need some sort of supervision by somebody other than the, the CPS person questioning the children? So, so if it's the CPS worker and the teacher... I don't know the circumstances. I don't know if the CTS worker was in the room by by themselves with the child. Normally, that's not what, what happens. That's always like a tag team situation. Mm-hmm. So m- more than likely, it was the CTS worker and the teacher. You know, you always want someone to corroborate what's going on. But if the case, going back, if the case is actually open, you can make the argument. But as I said, why would I get permission from you to talk to somebody that I believe that you committed a crime against? Or if I believe that you committed a crime and it is my job to see about the welfare of this person, this child, I'm not going to get your permission to speak to them when I think you've done some harm to them. I think you should. But if that, but if that case was closed and you actually went and you spoke to this child, then yes, that's a violation. Uh, so, so basically, uh, Paul, what we're going to do is we're going to sue CPS in Charlotte for talking to your kids, man. And Damn, we suing everybody. That's right. Suing CPS and the, uh, we suing um, who else we suing? We suing somebody else. And uh, we, we suing like five or six different people. So anyway, that's been another episode. Peace out. Later.